Rufus, what are you thinking of? Oh, I was just thinking of all the years I've wasted collecting stamps. Live from the Stamp Show Here Today infotainment complex, this is the award-winning Stamp Show Here Today. If you can dream it, we can collect it. Brought to you by the Southern Nevada Philatelic Research Center, a nonprofit 501c3 corporation for the advancement of philately. You can support this witless Tosh by joining the Stamp Show Here Today community. The cost is only $10 for a lifetime membership. We are an APS-affiliated club. Listen to the end credits for information on joining. This is Cash. And this is former meme librarian Mark. This is the philatelist formerly known as Sir Jim. This is Albert. This is Harish Persnani. I'm a guest on your show, and thanks for inviting me. You're very welcome. Um, just because you're here, uh, we were thinking about it, and what we're going to do is we're going to make this podcast an AI-based, quantum computer-generated podcast. Then we're going to roll it into a SPAC, sell it on eBay, and try to get about $190 million dollars. If you're a member of the Stamp Show Here Today community, you can get a share of that $190 million. So you can look at your membership as a really, really, really bad investment. It has the same effect as the titles we got out of Scotland. No, those, those were real. <laughs> <laughs> but I was gone for a while and you stripped me of my title. Oh, we didn't strip you of your title. You can still keep it. You just don't get a new one. It just expired after Labor Day. <laughs> yeah, it did, didn't it? Now I know how Harry feels. <laughs> <laughs> and Andrew. <laughs> so we're going to talk today about some flight covers. And Scott just walked in. First of all, why don't you say, uh, hi, this is Scott. Hi, this is Scott. No title, right? Of course not. <laughs> okay. Although boss. I do answer to hey you. <laughs> and boss. So Yes. So uh, what about flight covers? They fly. You're the one who brought up the topic. <laughs> yeah, well, I know. I thought it would be interesting to talk about the different types of flight covers and uh, kind of what people collected in the golden days of early flight. Um, you have different types of uh, flight covers, like first flight covers, uh, commemorative flight covers, uh, Zeppelin flight covers, um, and there's different flavors of those. You get um, you have contract airmail, foreign airmail routes. Uh, all of these things were. Uh, you even have uh, jet mail first flight covers, international jet flights. Um, and I, I just thought it would be interesting topic to bring up and, and just kind of touch on. I remember I got a whole bunch of, uh, first flight covers from Canada and it all had C number ones on them. The, uh, first airmail stamp of Canada. And the one that I was impressed with was from Moose Jaw. I had a Moose Jaw first flight cover and, uh, wasn't worth a lot, but it was just cool cause it's from Moose Jaw. Well, another interesting thing about uh, first flights, and I'll take contract airmail as, as an example, is a lot of times these flights, you might have a flight maybe, let's say, from Chicago to Atlanta, and, but the flight would actually stop along the way. And so each leg would, would be uh, a different stop. And, and so uh, each 
leg may uh, onload or offload covers along the way. And some of those are kind of rare. We had a uh, Amelia Earhart cover come through here. Was that a first flight? That was, well, I mean, technically it's a first flight. Um, that was her, her, transit, her solo transatlantic flight from uh, Newfoundland to Ireland. Mm. So, yeah, in, in effect it was. Uh, and she carried 50 covers. They were all numbered and signed by her. And we t- I think we talked about that. Yeah, we mentioned it. the coolest thing that crossed your desk. It, it probably crossed anybody's desk for quite a while. But I, I okay. doubt that she carried much more than those 50 covers. Because, yeah. I mean, she really needed all the space for gas. And food. Well, I don't think there was much food involved. It was only a couple of days, a day and a half or a day or something like that. I wouldn't eat something over a day well, and a half. Well, yeah, but you, would, but you wouldn't have a large pantry of food. Yeah. It would just be, you know, some sandwiches uh, and, and other things that would travel well, and they're fairly small. Beef jerky. Would you happen to know if there's a crossover uh, between, uh, of course, we stamp collectors love the covers, but what about aviation enthusiasts? Are they at all interested in these covers? Uh, yeah, sometimes. Uh, it depends. I, I've seen people buy stuff because it's where they're from or where they're living now. Uh, maybe the, a town name corresponds with their family name. Uh, there's all sorts of reasons. Maybe it was uh, the month and year of their birth or even the date of their birth. You know, a lot of reasons why people would buy something like that. But a- aviation enthusiasts, yeah, if they're if they're interested in in something then obviously anything that correlates with that would be uh would be part of what they collect i remember uh from steve patillo i bought a big huge box of covers and they all had airplanes and the airplane lane said Lindbergh on it nobody did any research on it but it was like a Lindbergh thing so you know i ended up paying like I think $2.75 per cover or something stupidly low. I then did the research, and uh, it was a flight that Lindbergh did from Dominican Republic to Haiti to Puerto Rico to Cuba to Florida. And Lindbergh actually flew it, and Tripp is the person who arranged it. Those who don't know Tripp, he's a big, big guy in uh, uh, aviation history. And it was the last... The founder fl- of Pan Am. Pan Am, exactly. And uh, it was the last flight of the Spirit of St. Louis before it went to uh, the Smithsonian. So it was like a last flight cover, <laughs> not a first flight. But nobody did the research to look up what it was. So I literally had hundreds of covers from each of the stops. And I ended up selling them for... 30 40 50 dollars per cover uh so very profitable but you got to look this stuff up I, I remember you had those for quite a few years oh yeah it took me years to sell them but you know i took me years to sell them because i wanted a good price for them the interesting thing about the early era something that i'd like to talk about in in connection with that is the early airmail rates because I think the average collector probably doesn't re- know this. This is something that um, aerophilatelists love but and understand. You just so, made that word up, didn't you? Yeah. And so, um, <laughs> first of all, um, the 
official airmail rate between, say, 1911 and 1916 was two cents for a letter, one cent for a postcard, which was the standard domestic postal rate. In other words, the postal regulations prohibited an extra charge for airmail. The government decided they were going to start running these government flights, and it coincided, you know, with the um, war effort. And so they issued the first stamp, which was actually C3, and that's the 24-cent Jenny. That was the first airmail stamp issued. It was for flights. Um, the first flights were May 15th. Uh, first day was May 11th, I think, May 12th. What year? 1918. But the first flights then were between designated cities. For example, they would go from uh, Washington, D.C. to Philadelphia to New York or something like that. And this, this was a day and age where the planes f basically didn't have instruments. They actually fold, followed roads. And if they got on the wrong road, they ended up in the wrong city. <laughs> Train tracks are actually more common. That's true. Uh, they follow the rail tracks. And that's the wrong way Kerrigan story, which is pretty famous. But, you know, he literally went the wrong way and landed somewhere and had to make a phone call and catch the train to bring the mail in. <laughs> but anyway, so two months later, that was the 24-cent rate was airmail plus special delivery. So they were getting 14 cents for airmail and 10 cents for special delivery at the time. Um, then two months later, on July 15th, they um, officially lowered the rate to uh, 6 cents and... Uh, is that right? Yeah, six cents and ten cents for special delivery. So that's our famous C two. So C one was issued in December of nineteen eighteen for six cent airmail rate and no special delivery. So when you look in the catalog, C one, two, and three are actually were issued in reverse order of that. Now the the interesting thing from a collector standpoint is you can still find these early Pioneer flights that are designated as a, um, what what do they call those, the, the Pioneer flights where they were, um, it's, it's escaping me now, I'm sorry. Experimental? Yeah, experimental routes. And they were flying these experimental routes and you would get, uh, you can find covers prior to the 1918 airmail cover with a two-cent stamp on it. And those are actually sought after pretty interestingly because they were carried on airmail flights, but they were domestic mail. So what you're saying is C2 and C3 should be des or C2 and C3 should be designated CE instead of C because they included the special, special delivery Special delivery, fee. yeah, and that's, that's another point on the thing. Now, another early flight that's very famous is the Finn Biz, uh, I'm sorry, the, the Finn, Finn, Fizz, Finn Fizz Flyer, which was a soda pop. But uh, when Cal Rogers um, undertook this cross-country flight, which he did in several legs, and, after, and had several crash landings during the flight, so it took a while, but 
he, he got a sponsor. So the sponsorship on the on this was a, it's considered a semi-official stamp, and those that are used on cover are really quite interesting. A Zinfiz stamp. Vinfiz. Vinfiz. Show me, show me a picture. I want to see the picture. Okay. I mean, I'm sure I've seen the stamp. It's in the catalog. So <laughs> yeah. V V I N F I Z. Yeah, and it's a very interesting. Okay, that's right here. For those of you who do not have uh, teleconnectic powers to see yeah, what we're I'll looking hold at. It up, hold it up to the microphone. Yeah, here. hold it up to the microphone. You can look oh, it up in the Oh, I've seen catalog. that stamp before that. Yeah. It's, it, is, it is after the special delivery stamps in the Scott catalog, and it, it's called semi-official post. So it's a blue stamp with a blue biplane airship. On it. Yeah. yeah. And actually the, the uh, stamps are... Very expensive because only a few of them survived. So they, these catalogs, only a few of them were sold too. Yeah. So uh, used on a postcard, seventy-five thousand. Used on a letter, hundred and fifteen thousand. <laughs> Mint, fifty-five thousand. That's a catalog value. And that's why I, I don't own one. <laughs> yes. We don't have a. We don't have that in our reference collection. Yeah. Um, I guess the reason I, I really like this kind of thing is because. Uh, that early flight era was um, uh, I, my son is a pilot and he has told told me an awful lot about learning to fly by instrument and stuff and when you you realize uh, Lindbergh made his flight across the transatlantic uh, flight with no windows in the cockpit at all he could it was all instruments. Well, I'm an expert yes. on this because I saw the movie The Great Waldo Pepper just like go. a week ago. There you go. I thought you were going to say the, the Blue Max. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an expert on test piloting. But anyway, the, there was a lot of crashes. So um, another collecting area is um, airbound fl flight covers that were actually recovered from wreckages. And a lot of them, almost all of those that were recovered because they were usually recovered days or weeks or even months after the airplane crashed. Um, they had uh, post office stamps applied to them saying delayed in the mail because the pilot was dead. Well, that, that's another uh, crash. complete area that uh, people avidly collect is crash covers. Yes. And not just crash covers, you know, airplane crashes, but... Trains. Boat crashes and train crashes and floods and mm -hmm. just anything that interrupts the mail and uh, is also a very good collecting yep. area. The Zeppelin flights. But we're talking about airplanes today. Yeah. Yeah. How about flight uh, covers with the Zeppelins? Well, that's... Those Those are probably the ones that most people are used to seeing. Well, I think those those are more often discussed just simply because they were... Um, they have a better more story. Impressive. When... Yeah. when when Joe Smith or whoever was piloting a plane and crashes into the mountains in Utah trying to go from uh, Los Angeles to Sheridan, Wyoming, or Cheyenne, Wyoming, then, you know, the mail's lost, the pilot's lost, but it's, it's just a story that's obscured in history. When the Hindenburg explodes and they have video and they had film of it and everything, that's a national disaster that everybody knows about. When the Titanic went down... I mean, how many ships sunk in the transatlantic uh, seaways over the years? But 
everybody knows about the Titanic because that was the one that That's true. sticks in the mind. The other thing I wanted to mention on the rates was that once the, um, in, in July 1st of 1924, the airmail rates were divided uh, transcontinental into divisions. And this is the reason that we have C4 through 6, because the divisions were $0.08, cents, $0.16, cents, and tw- uh, $0.08, cents, $0.16, cents, and $0.24. Cents. And those three stamps were issued to carry the mail on the divisions. The divisions were L.A. to Cheyenne, Wyoming, to Chicago, to New York. And so if you wanted to mail a letter transcontinental, it was $0.24. Cents. And if you wanted to mail it to Chicago, it was $0.16 cents from L.A., so forth. If you, if you were in Chicago and you wanted to mail it to Cheyenne, it was $0.08. Cents. And then they, um, I had a, in my collection, I had a $0.10 cent cover with a, a $0.05 cent postage due. And I could not figure out what that rate was for the longest time. And then I saw it advertised in an auction catalog. And that was um, one of those inter-rate things. It was a 10 cent emerald period, but it was paying the extra leg of the journey. Mm. So there, there's just an awful lot of combinations in, say, pre-1930 uh, airmail f- covers in the United States. Now, Scott, you collect Canada. You, you know anything about the Canadian airmail postage stamps, the semi-private? No, do you, do you I, I, I don't collect that oh, area. Okay. Uh, there were a lot of uh, semi-private uh, companies that put out their own airmail labels, and yeah. they're very avidly collected. The, the Canadian, um, the Canadian, the cattle, or the some of them are pretty rare. Yeah, the the. Um, the um, Canadian or, or the world, the Scott catalog has those listed. And I was amazed at how many different airmail companies stamps were issued in Canada. Well, the, the other thing we is, had is, the Vin Fizz one. Yeah. That's, well, the, but the other thing is, um, again, a lot of those were not issued in large quantities either. Right. They were private mail. Yeah. Now, I know you're interested in rates. When did the airmail rate? and the first-class postage rate become the same. Because for the long time, they charged more for airmail. Oh, oh. well, that's an interesting... Yeah, that's interesting. That's just recent. In, in 1976, I'm going to guess? Uh, it was sometime in the 1970s, I believe. Well, let's let's look in the catalog, because, because there, it, were airmail, it, there were airmail stamps issued. Right, there were still airmail stamps, but... Most of those were for overseas. But yeah. at, at, at that point, um, it became the most expeditious way to transport mail was just by air by air it switched from being by train and ship to being by air and at that point since everything was going by air anyway they dropped the premium for air mail and just made it the first class rate yeah it looks like there's two different um rates of airmail stamps up through the 90 if you look in the front of the scott catalog where it talks about the different rates it, yeah. In there is where it shows you. Oh, well, I have that. I don't know it off the top of my head, but I know where to look. Okay. So it says in 1974 to 1975, there was a 13 cent and 11 cent rate. And then after that, in 1975, semest- domestic airmail service was abolished. 
and there were other rates associated with it through 1977, but after that, it was the same. Right. Good trivia question. Yeah, because I didn't know it either. I had to look it up. <laughs> but I, I mean, I knew it was recent, but yeah. is 50 years ago recent to a lot of people listening? No, probably not. <laughs> well, I'm interested, like I said, in becoming a multimillionaire by selling this uh, podcast yes. in a SPAC. So we're going to... Uh, get really deep into quantum computing and AI, and we happen to have an AI expert here. So uh, tell us, again, you know, we, we, want, we want 200 million bucks for this podcast. So uh, tell us about AI so we can get on the way. Well, I need a lot of time to comment on that, but I'll first introduce myself. <laughs> I'm Harish Persnani, and um, I'm a friend, uh, I mean, I'm a customer and a friend of Kaz and Scott and uh, uh, nice folks here. Um, and I send my stamps for um, expertising here. Uh, I'm a stamp collector. Uh, first 300 stamps of the U.S. is my focus and then some others as well. Oh, give um, your eBay, uh, eBay site a plug too. Yeah, thank you. Um, my eBay handle is happyliving01. And I put my stamps there. Um, and uh, I'm a technologist. Um, I used to work for IBM and Gilead Sciences, which is a biopharmaceutical company. And I quit all of that last year to take a break. And I decided to uh, go deep into artificial intelligence field. And um, during that time, I saw uh, you know, people, uh, there's not a lot of awareness on artificial intelligence. And then with ChatGPT's arrival, pe there was varying degrees of understanding. So I decided to uh, demystify all of that uh, by writing a book, and uh, the book's name is ChatGPT Demystified. I published it in July. Uh, it is unlike a lot of get rich quick, um, get the spack kind of books. Oh man, <laughs> oh, you're, cra you're crashing us here <laughs> out there. But eventually, yes, uh, you know, uh, I think m my purpose was to democratize it a little bit uh, to m make sure it's simple enough for people to understand because I believe in this technology. People call it, it's an iPhone moment, but I think it's bigger than that. iPhone, you know, there's a lot of investment needed. Uh, it's, it's high priced, but this is no investment needed, very limited uh, limitations to access, and it's pretty growing pretty fast. And it's uh, transforming everything that uh, humans do. So I've tried to explain it at a very high level in my book. And hopefully my next few books would be a bit deeper. I'm writing, working on some new books. So how can we use in stamp collecting chat GPT? And so I know you already gave us the answer, but give it to everybody else who's on, who's listening who wasn't at lunch today. So there are a lot of ways, right? If you look at stamp collecting, it is about history, it's about art, uh, and it's about, I guess, storytelling. And uh, the current artificial intelligence strain that people know about, there's others as well, which I won't go in detail here. It will be too much for the audience. But um, it's generative AI, and it's human language processing. Uh, so what it means for us in the philately world is that we can get automation assistance and uh, research assistant on assistance on history with this technology versus searching on the web and combining it, uh, combining it into some legible form. Here we can ask that question in a human way 
to this kind of technology, this generative AI technology. So ChatGPT, you can go research on that, provided it has the uh, training on that. Or there are other ways which I've explained in the book on how you can connect these to other stores of information to get your content together. So that's the history part. From a visual, from a um, expertizing part, you could theoretically, and there's, you'll have to enhance it a little bit. Theoretically, you can do all the expertizing with uh, artificial intelligence. Today, they are reading um, x-rays, reading uh, MRI uh, through artificial intelligence because they're used for pattern recognition. They're using artificial intelligence in manufacturing to check the defects on products. So similarly, uh, there is no reason why it cannot be used here in philately. And then from an art perspective, you, know, you can also extend that to you know, confirm the you know, validity or you know, comparison to originals and so on. There's a lot of, I've not thought through all the scenarios or use cases, but these few came to mind immediately at this point. Cool. So uh, what we were discussing today at lunch was uh, maybe like using it for uh, eBay descriptions, you know, yeah. putting if we were talking about first flight covers. So, you know, all of a sudden you can type into chat, you can type into chat GPT, um, give me 100 words on uh, Amelia Earhart's 19, September 1941 flight. Mm -hmm. Or better than that. Why can't you just submit the scan of the cover to ChatGPT and say, tell me everything about this cover? Yeah. Is it at a point where you can do that? So not ChatGPT on its own, but there's plugins that you can connect to it uh, with the paid version, which is $20 a month right now. You can do a lot more with that version where you can connect it to plugins where you can upload images or PDF files that it can look at. But there's different AI that is being used for image analysis. Uh, and then the commercial, the consumer version of that, one of the most famous one is Stable Diffusion. Midjourney is another one that you may have heard of that is used for a lot of graphic processing. So that's a different kind of application of these generative technologies. But ChatGPT is more about text um, and, and you know related side of things. Uh, so in terms of the description, uh, you, that's the most that's the easiest thing you can ask it to do because that's where it, it's, it has the biggest capability where it can simply, and it, the interface is human language. You can just ask as if you're asking an expert or a friend. Uh, the trick is in your questions, how you ask it. Because I've explained in my book, there's a whole chapter on something called prompt engineering, which is a fancy word for the types of inputs you will put in that in, in human language. So how you make the, your prompt how you guide it to produce the text, because it's a text production engine in that sense, where it predicts uh, the next logical text that can follow the previous text, and it pieces together, and there's logic that starts emerging in that, because there's a depth to the training, and there's a lot more that I can speak here, but it'll be just too much. Uh, so yeah, you can. that's the easiest thing you can do. You can just ask it, hey, here's my stamp, here's some characteristics. Can you write me a copy for eBay listing? And I'd like to make it funny, or I'd like to make it jazzy, or like to, like to make it very historical. It'll produce that kind of text within a few seconds. 
So, well, I was going to ask, isn't the answer based on information that has been supplied to the AI? And what would be the source of that information? Would it have access to, say, um, the uh, um, auction catalog descriptions, you know, from past auctions? And I mean, how would that how would that uh, manifest? Yeah, in the I've explained a little bit. I'll try to stay on the high level here in the purest form these technologies do not remember. All of the text that was fed into it has been broken down into something called tokens. And uh, there were, and then probabilities have been assigned to those tokens on how they should show up based on the previous context or previous um, text. So that's how it builds stuff. But what you say is very significant is because it can only produce uh, based on the data that has been fed into it. So when the company OpenAI, which is a leading company, trying to do it the right way, uh, they, they created this, which was actually created earlier by Google and so on. So um, again, a lot of history there. Uh, you could argue that you know, all the, the outputs that it'll generate would be based on all of that. But again, with prompt engineering, you can, you can change that. But you know, that's where a lot of research is happening, that how do you avoid uh, the negativity that might have seeped in because the data set was so huge you cannot prevent some things. For example, if there is biases, this is a term that is used in the industry uh, about race, about um, you know discrimination, about you know superiority and all, all that kind of stuff that in society we try to avoid, that may have seeped in. Uh, Open has tried to avoid that, but now the technology is so cheap, you know you can feed it anything and uh, you can produce, you can have your uh, uh, different version of AI on your PC and be 90% as powerful as ChatGPT. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, you know discussion going on on how to prevent all of that. But to, in short, to answer your question, yes, it will tend to produce text which looks similar to what was fed into it, but it won't be able to reference what it is referencing. But it's, it's creating the text on the fly it just so happens that that text coincidentally looks like the text was uh, fed into it if you ask it the right way. If you ask it to produce the text in the way Hemingway would have written it or mm -hmm. Shakespeare would have written it, it will produce the text in that fashion. And it might look like it, as if Shakespeare wrote it. So uh, if we had a good picture and we asked chat GPT, is this stamp reperforated? At this time, we would have to put in all the aspects of reperforating, and then it would be able to analyze it and tell you, yes, you need to check this for reperforating, or no, this is okay, or something like that. Yeah, so technically, image processing would be a separate thing that you'll have to translate. If you are using ChatGPT as your main AI engine, you'll have to you know, translate the image properties into it. So that's one piece it, piece of it. But yeah, theoretically, you can ask it, but you don't necessarily have to feed the science behind perforation or the details because, you know, well, I'll use the word hopefully here, but hopefully it would have had that information fed into it already. But let's assume that it has not. Essentially, the whole internet was fed into it, um, a curated part of it, until 2021. 
But today you can extend it, you can connect it to a PDF file that you're inputting into it or so on and so forth. So you could, let's say it is missing information on perforations, so you can feed it that information so it becomes knowledgeable for that instance. That will only last for the session you're in, but if you want it long-term, then there's something called fine-tuning. Again, an advanced topic that you could build your own PSE-specific AI that you can use to really do some solid work. Oh, that sounds mm -hmm. very interesting then. So I, I have a comment because you said that it breaks the data down into little bundles mm -hmm. and um, would give you probably the most, um, if, to your question, if you ask a question, it would give you the first answers would be the most uh, uh the best answer for the question. And then as it further got went down, it would get this other data. So this is one of the things we that uh, Jim Forty did was to um, go in and ask it about Nevada postal history, which happens to be my field of interest. And the um, chat GPT um, produced a very good paragraph on Nevada postal history, but then started talking about the first post office in Las Vegas, the first federal building. In, in other words, it went to other things that were post office related, but not necessarily postal history as we define it. Yeah, that's and so that 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 would talk, take some um, uh, creativity on our part to generate a more. Uh, specific item specific answer yeah that's a very odd scenario that I'll have to look into detail on what was asked but generally there's con context that is fixed uh, X number of uh, tokens or words and it has increased so it has that current memory uh, right now it can go as far as 30 to 1,000 tokens, which is a lot, which is as much as book, but it started out at 4,000 or 2,000. So he may have tried it at that stage. And there is another problem with generative AI, AI that happens because it produces text on the fly. It sometimes can, quote, unquote, hallucinate. And I've explained that phenomenon in, in my book where if you ask it something in a tricky fashion, that, hey, tell me about this beautiful uh, product from this known company, it will make up stuff about that product, even if the product does not exist, because you asked it with certainty. So you can trick it into certain hallucinations, but a lot of research is going on on how to avoid it. At the end of the day, it has been fed trillions of tokens, gigabytes, petabytes of data, so it's a hard problem to solve, but they're working on how to figure those kinds of things out. But in a common scenario, these things should not happen. Give a plug for your book again oh, and so where you can get it. Thank you. My book is called Chat GPT Demystified, and it's available on Amazon or my website. You can link from there. It's called AI Unclouded. Or even if you type Unclouded AI, you'll get to the same place, AIUnclouded.com. How, how have you used this in your collecting at all? Um, just for some research and ask it in interesting questions, but not much. I've been busy writing this and children's books, so I've not connected it much on Philately. So just to plug my children's books, which I have another pseudonym, it's called D.R. Whimsiquill, D-R-W-H-I-M-I-S-I-Q-U-I-L-L.com. You might be the only group who knows the identity of D.R. Whimsical now. <laughs> <laughs> well... Uh, again, we have lots of benefits for being a member of uh, the podcast. 
uh, having a share in this multi-hundred million dollar SPAC that we're looking to go into. Perspectively. Uh, perspectively. Um, as a matter of fact, we could use uh, ChatGPT to try to sell it to people. Yeah. 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 So yeah. on that note, keep collecting. We need your help. Nothing on the internet is free, including our phone and internet connections. So you can support the podcast by joining the Stamp Show Here Today Club. The cost is $10 for a lifetime membership. Please include your APS member number as we are an APS-affiliated club. Your support is greatly appreciated. Our brand new spanking address is 5965 Harrison Drive, Suite 6 in Las Vegas, Nevada, 89120. You left out the word glorious. Fabulous. <laughs> because you don't put that on the letter. Oh. Well, you could. You could, yeah. You could, yeah. Well, kids, that's all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank Sideshow Mel, Corporal Punishment, Tina Ballerina, oh, and from Not Landing, Miss Donna Mills. Oh, she was a sport. We've had lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of fun, but now the time has come to go. If this silkom was found dead in his bed tomorrow, I'd be in heaven still doing this show. See you some other time! <laughs> Stamp collecting happens when we dream together.